0: Today's topic is pretty much torn from the headlines. While we are glad to be timely, I have to say personally that much of what we will discuss today is also very sad. But we are so delighted to welcome so many talented speakers, experts, to help us better understand the issues and policies in play. Uh, That is so much the case with regard to our keynote speaker, Wendy Parmet, the Matthews Distinguished University Professor of Law and Director of the Center for Health Policy and Law at Northeastern University School of Law and Professor of Public Policy and Urban Affairs at Northeastern School of Public Policy and Urban Affairs. Professor Parmet is one of our foremost scholars and advocates in the areas of health disability and public health law. This is a one-day conference, so I don't have time to read off her list of publications. What I can tell you is that her peers hold her in the very highest regard. Indeed, in 2016, she was honored with the prestigious Jay Healy Health Law Teachers Award by the American Society of Law, Medicine, and Ethics. Although I'm not going to list her publications there is one I do want to touch on and it's the book she co-authored with Patricia Illingworth that was the inspiration for this conference. It's called The Health of Newcomers. In the book's introduction, the authors argue, quote, we seek not only to demonstrate why it is rational and moral for nations to treat the health interests of natives and newcomers alike, but also to dispel myths about newcomers that have undermined the willingness of natives to promote the health interests of newcomers as they would those of family and compatriots. That is why we're having this conference, and that is why we're so honored to have Professor Parmet start the proceeding.
1: Thank you so much, Professor Terry. I am so thrilled to be here and to participate in this amazing conference. There are so many people from here who will speak during the day from whom I have learned so much, um, but all errors, mine alone. The theme of this conference, the intersection of immigration law and health policy, could not be timelier. Almost every day brings us yet another story about immigration and health care. We hear about the long-term health care effects of children who have been separated from their parents at the border, of immigrant minors being denied access to reproductive health services, about children being detained by ICE on their way to emergency surgery. Pediatricians around the country are widely reporting that parents fearing ICE Enforcement have stopped bringing children to basic medical appointments. Hospitals and other healthcare providers are worrying about losing workers due to declines in H-1B visas, the travel ban, and the possible elimination of DACA. And more recently, we have media personalities warning us that a caravan of migrants in southern Mexico now will bring disease to the border. And just earlier this month, citing the goal of promoting self. among immigrants, the Department of Homeland Security published proposed public charge regulations, which, if promulgated, will chill millions of legal immigrants and citizen members of their family from using a broad array of public health benefits, including Medicaid and Medicare Part D. All of these incidents and many more illustrate that when immigration policy meets health policy, health policy and public health suffer. The health care system covers fewer people while becoming costlier and less efficient. Public health becomes imperiled as punitive and futile efforts to keep diseases out by targeting newcomers replace evidence-based public health approaches. And less obviously, but no less important, when immigration and health policy meet, we risk forgetting why we have health policy in the first place. In the brief time that I have, I want to discuss these issues and explore why laws and policies that lie at the intersection of health and immigration are so problematic. I want to make four broad claims about the intersection of immigration and health. First, the issues we face are neither new nor are they limited to our own nation. Second, because of the enduring tensions between xenophobia, which pushes us to expel immigrants from our healthcare programs and blame them for the diseases we suffer, and our interdependency with respect to health, not to mention our humanity. The interjection of immigration law into health law adds to fragmentation, complexity, and inefficiencies. Third, the interjection of immigration policies into health undermines our health, but not for the reasons that are commonly given. Many argue that we need to provide health care to immigrants, least they spread dangerous diseases. However, immigrants as a whole, I will say, are healthier than Native-born Americans. In reality, our policies towards immigrants harm our health, not because immigrants are vectors of disease, but because our health policies are weakened by our immigration-driven policies. And finally, the battles over immigration and health are so contentious and so heated because they expose fundamental questions about the nature of community, solidarity, and the underlying rationale for health policy. I want to discuss each in claim, and because of time, I'll necessarily speak in rather broad strokes. First, the issues we are discussing are not The belief that immigrants, documented and undocumented, create a threat to public health and that they are undeserving and draining our health care system and must be excluded has been a recurrent theme of U.S. health law. In the 19th and early 20th centuries, many immigrants were frequently blamed for epidemics, and they were routinely subjected to harsh, punitive, and almost always ineffective public health policies. It's no coincidence that Typhoid Mary was an immigrant from Ireland. Likewise, from their very inception, our immigration laws tried to keep out immigrants who were thought from a eugenics and racist perspective to threaten public health. In an 1892, Congress barred those suffering from loathsome or dangerous contagious diseases, as well as insane persons, paupers, persons likely to become a public charge from entering the country. These policies were enforced by the rather infamous medical examinations that were conducted overseas and at Ellis and Angel Islands at the immigration centers, where immigrants were turned away for health grounds. These policies were also used to deny refuge to Jewish refugees from the Holocaust in the 1930s. They did little or nothing to improve public health. These policies, however, did not disappear with the discrediting of eugenics and the advent of modern public health science. In the 1990s, long after we should have known better, long after HIV and AIDS were endemic in the United States, Congress barred non-citizens with HIV from visiting or immigrating to the country, as if outsiders were the source of the disease that was already so prevalent here. And the federal government quarantined HIV-positive refugees from Haiti, at Guantanamo Bay in Cuba, the action that presaged the use of Guantanamo as a detention camp for terrorists. Also in the 1990s, following a campaign that claimed that immigrants were a drain on the state's health care system, California enacted Proposition 187, which barred undocumented immigrants from accessing health benefits and required healthcare workers to report those they suspected of being undocumented. Although Proposition 187 was quickly enjoined by the courts and it never went into effect, it inspired the 1996 Personal Responsibility and Work Reconciliation Act, which established significant limits on the eligibility of immigrants, both documented and legal. Two federally funded health benefits. Then came the financial crisis of 2008. Faced with budgetary pressures, states across the nation moved to reduce health benefits for numerous classes of immigrants. My own state of Massachusetts, which claimed to have adopted universal health care, remember Romney Care, cut back on that promise by excluding certain classes of lawfully present immigrants from the state's forerunner of what became the ACA. That's when I came to realize that talk about universal health coverage obscured the question of who was part of the universe. Later, in the summer of 2009, when what became the ACA was being debated, its opponents rallied around the erroneous claim that the bill would cover undocumented immigrants. In September 2009, President Obama promised a joint session of Congress that his plan would do no such thing. Perhaps foreshadowing the current uncivil state of political discourse, Republican Representative Joe Wilson from South Carolina shouted during the president's address, you lie. What was most remarkable about this incident was not Williams' breach of decorum, but the vehemence of the immigration-focused opposition. Perhaps even more remarkably, Wilson's interruption and the immigration-based opposition to the ACA suggested to some that many Americans, would rather forfeit health care access for themselves and their own families than provide coverage to non-citizens. This vehemence, which set the stage for the policies pursued by the present administration, is not confined to the United States. As in the U.S., immigrants throughout the world are blamed for diseases and derided as drains on the publicly funded health care programs. To give but a few examples, proponents of Brexit relied heavily on the that migrants from the EU were bankrupting the National Health Service. And in Poland, former Prime Minister and current leader of the Law and Justice Party, Joslo Kaczynski, has warned that migrants bring to Europe, quote, diseases that are highly dangerous and have not been seen for a long time. Moreover, and I think this is important, all niches, underline all, deny some classes of immigrants access to their national health programs. And in the last several years, many European countries have cut back on programs providing coverage for migrants. To understand the intersection of health and immigration, we need to look at these issues and not fool ourselves into thinking that the problems we're talking about today are simply the result of a single election. Second, not only do these anti-immigration health policies harm the interests of immigrants, that's obvious, they add to the complexity, cost, and inefficiency of our healthcare system. They also help to explain its frequent incoherence. To be sure, the question of what our health laws should look like is contested and complicated, and I'm sure you've had many a symposium on all those issues. You know, should we have single payer, ACA, what's the role of federalism, okay? But where everyone comes down on these questions, I think we need to concede that immigration's interjection has been highly problematic. Take, for example, the act i discussed before, the Personal Responsibility and Work Opportunity Reconciliation Act of Perora to its best friends. It prohibited certain categories of newcomers deemed unqualified from being eligible for federally funded health benefits, including Medicaid and CHIP. It also established a five-year bar, during which time most classes of qualified immigrants are ineligible for such programs. Whether these exclusions are good or bad, I'll leave for another time. But what I want to say is that all of the exclusions are riddled with exceptions. And that's sort of the the game of health policy and immigration. For every exclusion, there's an exception. And for every exception, there's a countervailing contra-exception. Many laws enacted after Perora limit some of its impact, for example, by creating new Medicaid and CHIP eligibility programs. And then along comes the ACA, which doesn't repeal Perora, but uses an entirely different set of terminology and establishes entirely different criteria for determining when non-citizens are eligible for benefits. I could go on and drone on for a long time about this. But for the moment, what I want to underscore is if American health law is complex and confusing, it is doubly so when we think about immigration. Indeed, our efforts to bar certain classes of non-citizens from various health programs and then to provide alternatives and partial routes to care and sort of different ways of financing the care that we've denied sort of in the front door has helped to make our infamously complex and fragmented system even more complex and even more fragmented. And while there are many exceptions and programs that cover many immigrants, there are also numerous holes. Not everything gets covered, costs get spread, and we all end up paying for it. Immigration law can also add to the incoherence of our health policies. Consider for example the proposed new public charge rules. Under the Immigration and Naturalization Act, an immigrant is inadmissible to enter the US and cannot receive a green Green card, once here, if he or she is found likely to become a public charge. But under long-standing policy, an immigrant was considered a public charge only for relying predominantly on cash assistance or needing long-term care. The proposed regulations published on October 10 would change this in many ways. First, they would consider an immigrant a public charge for using Medicaid or Medicare D, and possibly CHIP, the administration is seeking comments on that as well as a variety of other non-cash programs, such as food stamps. Second, they would look to use of these programs in the three years prior to the application for admission or a green card as heavily weighted negative factors in determining whether a person would be likely to use these programs in the future. And third, they will consider the immigrant's medical conditions and age and lack of private insurance as further negative factors. There are many problems and complexities with these regulations, I'll discuss others in a few minutes. What I want to note here is that, again, they add to the complexity. For example, under the proposal, the use of Medicaid is problematic, but not the use of state health benefits. The problem is that in many states, the so-called Medicaid program covers a range of recipients, some of whom qualify for federal Medicaid support, and some of whom do not. These programs are often combined because doing so is more efficient. The public charge rules may force states to disaggregate programs or it will force them to create complex mechanisms for tracking different classes of beneficiaries, adding again to costs and complexity to already strapped state programs. But perhaps more importantly, the regulations will undercut the goals Congress had in mind when it created these programs and indeed when it created eligibility groups under Perora. Remember, not all non-citizens, even all lawfully not present non-citizens, are eligible for public health benefits. But Congress clearly intended that some would be. And in some cases, it even created special eligibility criteria for non-citizens, those are the exclu- exceptions to the exclusions, to allow them to be. The public charge regulations will conflict with these goals, incentivizing immigrants to avoid programs that Congress specifically created for them. And again, incoherent policies. Immigration law may also undermine our capacity to finance our health care system. Despite the widely held belief that immigrants burden our systems, research continuously shows that immigrants are younger and healthier, and they use fewer health resources than native-born residents. A recent study by Zalman and colleagues found that immigrants pay more into private insurance premiums than they take out, and a literature review by Flavin and colleagues found that immigrants are net- contributors to the Medicare trust fund. By denying immigrants access to these programs and cutting back on immigration, we are jeopardizing the long-term viability of our health care financing. But it's not only health care delivery and financing that suffers. Immigration's intersection with health policy also undermines public health laws. For example, for many years, our policy sought to encourage HIV testing the ban on immigration by individuals who were HIV positive conflicted with that goal. While the government sought to reduce stigma and promote testing as a way of fighting the HIV epidemic, immigration policies reinforced stigma by saying you can't come here if you are HIV positive. Indeed, the immigration ban even led to a long running boycott of the U.S. by the International AIDS Conference and kept many HIV researchers from traveling to and working in the US for well more than a decade. In all of these cases and many more, the introduction of immigration law undercut health policy objectives. It also made already complicated and murky areas of the health law more arcane, and perhaps more importantly, it added to efficiencies in costs and implementation. And of course, by undermining health policies, the interjection of immigration into health policy impacts public health. But it's important to emphasize, as I said earlier, that immigration law does not harm public health by increasing the danger that uninsured immigrants will come and spread dangerous diseases. To the contrary, for the most part, immigrants are healthier than native-born citizens. There are higher rates of some diseases in some classes, especially tuberculosis but there's no evidence showing that immigration is posing a widespread threat to the health of the U.S. population. Nevertheless, the mixture of immigration and policy into health law does threaten public health. It does it by undermining health policy, as I've said before. But it also tends to reinforce the mistaken and problematic belief that infectious diseases and pandemics are caused by immigrants, foreigners, and those who are, abroad. This view that we can only be kept safe if we keep them out leads to demands for travel bans and walls rather than for investment in public health infrastructure and support for efforts to fight diseases globally where many emerging infectious diseases arise. Immigration law can also harm the health of immigrant patients, their families, and their communities by reducing their access or willingness to use health services. Services. As noted above, clinicians have been reporting that patients are not showing up for appointments. Some of these patients are immigrants, but many are citizen members of mixed status the households. When accessing health care becomes scary, when communities fear that ICE may detain them outside of healthcare facilities, in the parking lots, for example, the health consequences ripple across families and communities and across generations. Children who are today separated from their parents or go to school wondering if their parents will be deported or denied access to basic pediatric care will carry scars that will affect them for for decades. Public health is also threatened because healthcare institutions and healthcare workers bear the burden of immigration laws. Safety net hospitals and community health centers have fewer resources if many of their patients lose access to care or disenroll from insurance programs out of fear of immigration consequences for so doing it. Healthcare workers also worry about their own immigration status. In 2016, immigrants comprised 16%. Of the healthcare workforce, cutbacks in H 1 visas, termination of DACA affect doctors and nurses. But we need to think especially about lower skilled workers. 22% in the healthcare workforce are immigrants. These are the people who work in our nursing homes, and they are our home health aides They care for our family members and for ourselves when we need them. Many of these workers undoubtedly live in mixed status families where fear of deportation is palpable. And even for those who have no undocumented members in their family, the proposed public charge regulations will introduce new levels of anxiety and barriers to accessing health benefits. Moreover, the implementation of the public charge regulations in consulates around the world is designed to stifle family reunification, and it will prevent many of our future health care workers from ever entering this country. And one needs to wonder what will happen in our nursing homes and for home health aides decades hence. The proposed public charge regulations will also adversely affect the social determinants of health. We've known for many years that the health of a population is determined more by social and environmental conditions than by clinical medical interventions. The public charge rule and the immigration crackdown itself are adverse social determinants. They spark fear, anxiety, and trauma, and stress. The proposal may also harm public health by leading many immigrants to disenroll, not only in health insurance programs, but in benefits such as SNAP or Housing subsidies, that redress social determinants. The consequences cannot and will not be confined to non-citizens, but will almost certainly affect citizen children and, again, families, right? If an immigrant mother loses food stamps, the citizen's children may go hungry. Indeed, the Department of Homeland Security shockingly recognized in its proposed regulations that they could lead to worse health outcomes Increases in obesity and malnutrition, and the department said this, especially for pregnant women and breastfeeding women. Increases in communicable disease among citizens, higher rates of poverty and housing instability. In short, in the supposed attempt... To promote self-sufficiency and drive non-citizens out of our healthcare programs, the regulations risk the health of all of us, which gets me to my final point. The tensions, contradictions, complexities, and harms that we see at the intersection of immigration and health reflect deeper tensions within our health policies and laws. Most obviously, we see from the exclusions and the insistence on self-sufficiency the strong strains of individualism and individual responsibility that run through American health policy, and have helped to mark repeated battles of Medicaid, Medicare, the ACA, ambivalent about the idea that health care should be a right, reluctant to see diseases as socially determined, unwilling to accept the idea that no one is wholly self-sufficient throughout their lifetime. We often feel the need to draw lines, limit eligibility, and blame people for their own illnesses. In this task, non-citizens present a handy foil. They are the easy scapegoat can bar non-citizens, then maybe citizens can fool themselves into thinking that the healthcare system is only for those who are deserving. And thus, citizens can believe that they are deserving and self-sufficient. But of course, the story is far more nuanced. Remember that immigration law adds to complexity and contradictions because for almost every exclusion, there is a partial exception. And for most punitive measures, I could point to other supportive measures. This complexity and incoherence suggests that individualism, exclusion, and xenophobia are not the only or even maybe the dominant chords at the intersection of health and immigration. There are also themes of inclusion, compassion, and solidarity. And this, I think, gets us to the gist of the tensions at the juncture between immigration and health law. Perhaps more than any other field, health law deals with human vulnerability. Our illnesses, our weaknesses, our dependence on one another, and ultimately our own mortality. As patients, we literally and metaphorically expose ourselves to others. We become intimate and vulnerable. As members of communities served by public health, we accept limitations on our own liberty and autonomy because we recognize our mutual vulnerabilities. We are all part of the herd. For whom shall we limit our liberty? To whose vulnerabilities shall we respond? As Patricia Illingworth and I explored in our recent book on immigration and health, the concept of solidarity refers to a willingness to act for others out of a sense of identification with the other. Solidarity underpins a willingness to cover costs, carry costs for the other that goes beyond simple short-term self-interest. I care about the health of others, not because it will benefit me directly, although it might at times, and not even because doing so is just, though it may be. I do so because I recognize my own vulnerability in the other. Solidarity is often said to underpin the social welfare state, including healthcare systems. We see it in the UK's National Health Service and in the Canada Health Act. But it's also present in the U.S., Medicare, Medicaid, and the ACA. We say we don't have universal coverage, but we got a lot of health programs, folks. Solidarity, however, can be and often is exclusionary. It may adhere more easily to those who appear to be similar, who share a demographic identity. Perhaps for this reason, as I've mentioned, even the most robust national health care programs exclude newcomers. More ominously, many have feared that the solidarity that underpins healthcare systems can only remain strong if the systems are exclusionary. Thus, we might note that the most generous social welfare programs tend to be in relatively homogeneous countries, and that support for these systems, as well as for our own less robust system, has been stressed as globalization and migration have threatened homo- demographic homogeneity. Thus, we can understand that the so-called demographic anxiety that seems to be rising around the world is related to concomitant calls for austerity and the divestment in health and social welfare progress. Because I want to be hopeful, though, I want to stress that solidarity need not be based on ethnic, racial, or national identity. It can also cohere around mutual goals, experiences, common causes, and as I said above, shared vulnerabilities. And no realm creates more opportunities for these than health. Indeed, the fact that the health of newcomers has ripple effects across communities, that we are not and cannot be self-sufficient with health, creates commonalities of interests and opportunities for the formation of solidarity with respect to health. And there are signs of this, not only at the bedside when an immigrant personal care attendant cares for an elderly citizen, or when a citizen physician cares for immigrant patients. We see signs of this in our in the exceptions to all the exclusions. We are seldom willing to be quite as hard-hearted as a first glance at our laws would suggest. Signs are also present in the demonstrations by healthcare workers to protect immigrant patients the leading role that physician groups have taken in the face of family separation policies, the extraordinary national nationwide coalition that has formed to challenge the public charge rules, and the innumerable community groups who are fighting for the health of everyone in their community. Solidarity can and is forming in health. Health can teach us about our common humanity and bring us together. And perhaps this is why the battles over health and immigration are so heated. For those who fear ethnic and demographic change, the health of immigrants is frightening, precisely because health is where we learn to see the humanity in the so-called other. And this leads me to conclude that the laws and policies that lie at the intersection of immigration and health are not simply about the health of immigrants. Rather, they are reflections of our ambivalence about the most fundamental health question of all. Why do we have a health care system? And from that, we might ask, why do we care about the health of strangers, immigrants or citizens. And these questions offer the possibility of answering those questions with the simple but powerful retort that can extend beyond health care to other realms. We care because we are human.